Let's pray and ask God for his help. Our Father and our God, we do thank and praise you for giving us your word, even as we look at uh, really tough passages like this. We thank you that, uh, uh, that they are your word and that we can learn from them. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would reveal Jesus to us all the more clearly as we see how terrible things were in the days of the judges. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, there is something wrong with people. Something drastically wrong. As at February this year, there were 33 wars raging in our world all at the same time. While, while millions of people live in luxury, billions of people live below the poverty line. Each year, millions of people die because they don't have access to basic food, water, shelter and medical care. You say millions of people, well, that's millions of individuals, millions of tragedies of one person at a time. And that's, that's globally speaking. There's something wrong on a smaller scale as well. People struggle with marriage, with family life. The world is full of substance abuse and depression and sadness. No culture is without widespread crime. There is something wrong with people. As the poem goes, all the world is mad except for thee and me, and often I fear for thee. There's something drastically wrong. Now, there are plenty of suggestions about what this problem with people is and plenty of ideas about how to fix it. Some say that what is wrong with people is ignorance. It's a lack of knowledge. If people could just know more, then the world would be fixed. And so the solution to our problem is education. If everybody was educated, then the world would be fixed. Other people say that the problem is people don't have access to the good things of society. They don't have enough stuff. And so the answer is good economic policy, economics. That certainly seems to be the assumption of Australian politics. Some think that our problems are biological. There's, there's something physically or mentally wrong with us. That, that, that's, that's our problem. And so the solution is medicine or science or psychology. Some people think that the problem is in the way our society is run, whether it be monarchy or democracy or anarchy or whatever it is, they think the solution is political. Now, something is wrong with people. Now, of course, we, we can't know how to fix it until we know what the problem is. So what's the problem? Why are people so bad? Why are we so broken, so flawed? What, what's the problem and is there a solution? Well, we come today to uh, this last in our series in the book of Judges. It's a book, um, the book of Judges is a book that tells the history of the Israelite people from around about 1300 to 1000 BC. And uh, I'm sure that you remember, those of you who have been here by now, the cycle of the book of Judges. So for the last time, Israel are bad. God gets mad. Israel are sad. God raises up a rescuer. Israel serve God for a while but it's not long before they're bad again. Okay, we've got this cycle, we've seen it over and over again, but I'm sure you've noticed over the last couple of weeks that as things get more and more chaotic and worse in Israel, the cycle is starting to get broken. So with Jephthah, God didn't raise up a rescuer for them. They had to find their own rescuer. With Samson, do you remember, the problem was Israel were never sad. There was no repentance and so on. In chapters 17 to 21, the cycle is completely broken. Israel are bad, and that's all there is 
That's all there is. It is unrelenting badness for five chapters. As I say, prepare yourself because it's pretty awful. This passage is made up of two stories and they are stories in which badness spreads. It starts off small with just, just a person but spreads to impact thousands of people. We start off with, with one bloke, a bloke by the name of Micah. Micah, obviously a charming sort of a man, he steals some silver from his mum. He decides to give it back and she is so happy that she says, great, here's some to make an idol. Judges chapter 17 and verse 4. Have a look with me. Judges chapter 17 and verse 4. He returned the silver to his mother and she took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to a silversmith who made them into the image and the idol. And they were put in Micah's house. Now this man Micah had a shrine and he made an ephod and some idols and installed one of his sons as his priest. Now those of you who know uh, the, uh, God's law from the first five books of the Old Testament, you can basically tick off about 23 laws that have been broken in that little section there. And, and the narrator then gives us the reason for this idolatry. He says this is why it's happening in Israel. It's because Israel had no king. It's because people did whatever they wanted to do. It's in verse 6. In those days... Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. A bloke from the Israelite tribe of Levi comes to Micah's house. His name is Jonathan. And Micah says, great, I've got a Levite. They're the ones who are supposed to be the priests. And so he enlists Jonathan to be priest of his idols. And again, the narrator gives us the reason for this idolatry. Verse 12. 12. Then Micah installed the Levite. And the young man became his priest and lived in his house. And Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will be good to me, since this Levite has become my priest. In those days, Israel had no king. Okay, so we've started with the idolatry of one, one bloke, Micah, one family, his family, his, his little idolatrous shrine for his family. Well, chapter 18, we hear about the Israelite tribe. So uh, there were 12 tribes in Israel. This is one of, the, one of the whole tribes of Israel. It's a tribe called Dan. Now, uh, Dan have been allotted some land in the Promised Land in, in an area that was currently held by the Amorites. But uh, as you see in chapter 1, chapter 2, they weren't strong enough to take it. So here in chapter 18, they're out spying around to see if there's a place they can take over. They find a place called Laish. It's not part of the territory assigned to them, but they don't care. They see their opportunity, they kill everyone, and they take over. But the worst part of the story, as far as the narrator is concerned, is what happens between the Danites and this bloke called Micah. Now, the Danites see Micah's household idols, and they steal them, and they set them up in their new territory, and they make them the idols of their whole tribe, with Jonathan, who turns out to be a direct descendant of Moses himself, as their idolatrous priest. Halfway through verse 28. Verse 28. The Danites rebuilt the city and settled there. They named it Dan after their forefather Dan, who was born to Israel, though the city used to be called Laish. There the Danites set up for themselves the idols. And Jonathan, son of Gershom, the son of Moses, and his sons were priests for the tribe of Dan until the time of the captivity of the land. They continued to use the idols Micah had made all the time the house of God was in Shiloh. You see the point of the story? It's a story of, of, of spreading idolatry. 
What was the idolatry of one man has now become the idolatry of a whole tribe in Israel. Idolatry has become, it is widespread in Israel and it's gone deep. It's gone, penetrated all the way to the very family of Moses. And why? Why are people so bad? What is wrong with them? Well, the narrator gives his reasoning in chapter 19 and verse 1. Chapter 19 and verse 1. In those days, Israel had no king. That brings us to our second story. There's another man from the Israelite tribe of Levi, the tribe that was supposed to be the priests. Uh, This Levite, in contradiction to God's law, takes a concubine, a kind of a second-class wife, a wife you have when you're not having a wife or something like that. She, um, She leaves him. She heads home to mum and dad. The Levite then goes and gets her to bring her back. On the way back, they stop in an Israelite town called Gibeah. And what happens in this Israelite town is basically the same thing that happens in the town of Sodom, back in the book of Genesis. First, no one will show hospitality to them. They are left in the square until a guy from Ephraim, a different tribe, comes and takes them in. While they're in the house of the guy from Ephraim, a whole heap of the men come and they knock on the door and they demand to have homosexual sex with the Levite. The Levite bravely kicks his concubine out and sends her out to them. That was me being ironic. And the men rape her until she collapses. Chapter 19 and verse 22. 1922. While they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house. Pounding on the door, they shouted to the old man who owned the house, Bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. The owner of the house went outside and said to them, No, my friends, don't be so vile. Since this man is my guest, don't do this disgraceful thing. Look, here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. I will bring them out to you now and you can use them and do to them whatever you wish. But but to this man, don't do such a disgraceful thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man took his concubine and sent her outside to them. And they raped her and abused her throughout the night. And at dawn they let her go. At daybreak, the woman went back to the house where her master was staying, fell down at the door and lay there until daylight. Now this Levite, charming bloke that he is, having secured his own safety, then went off to bed for a nice, happy night's sleep. Next morning, morning he wakes up, ready to go and uh, trips over his concubine as if he'd forgotten all about her. Verse 27. When her master got up in the morning and opened the door of the house and stepped out to continue on his way, there lay his concubine, fallen in the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, Get up, let's go! But there was no answer. Then the man put her on his donkey and set out for home. He takes her home, Chops her up into 12 pieces. I hope she was dead already. He sends bits of her to each tribe in Israel. And it leads to widespread outrage. Verse 29. 29. When he reached home, he took a knife and cut up his concubine limb by limb into 12 parts and sent them into all the areas of Israel. Everyone who saw it said, Such a thing has never been seen or done, not since the day the Israelites came up out of Egypt. Think about it. Consider it. Tell us what to do. People from all over Israel gather for a big meeting. They decide they're going to punish the men of Gilead for this crime. 
And so they speak to the leaders of the tribe of Benjamin, which is the tribe that Gilead is a town. Gilead's a part of the tribe of Benjamin. They say to the Benjamites, hand over these criminals. But the people of Benjamin won't do it. And so they start a violent civil war. As you read through chapter 20, you'll see there's battle after battle, enormous casualties. Perhaps in the, in the course of uh, this chapter, there are maybe 100,000 casualties. You can't tell exactly from the numbers, but an uh, enormous number of casualties. And, and the tribe of Benjamin all but wiped out. All but wiped out. Only 600 men survive. Chapter 20 and verse 46. 2046. Twenty forty six. On that day, twenty five thousand Benjamite swordsmen fell, all of them valiant fighters. But six hundred men turned and fled into the desert to the rock of Rimmon, where they stayed four months. The men of Israel went back to Benjamin and put all the towns to the sword, including the animals and everything else they found. All the towns they came across, they set on fire. A terrible story. One murder has led to a bloody civil war. One murder has led to the annihilation of a whole tribe in Israel. Chapter 21, the Israelites are regretting what they've done. And so they call another meeting. They feel sad that one tribe has been destroyed. They're ready to let bygones be bygones with these 600 remaining Benjamites. The problem is there are only Benjamite men left. All of the women have been murdered. And the Israelites have taken an oath. They've taken an oath that they won't give their daughters in marriage to any of the Benjamites. And so they take action to get wives for the Benjamites. First, they find one of the towns that didn't join in the Civil War, a town called Jabesh Gilead. They murder everyone in the entire town except for the virgin women. And then they force the women to marry the Benjamites. Chapter 21 and verse 10. 21, 10. So the assembly sent 12,000 fighting men with instructions to go to Jabesh Gilead and put to the sword those living there, including the women and children. This is what you were to do, they said. Kill every male and every woman who is not a virgin. They found among the people living in Jabesh Gilead 400 young women who had never slept with a man, and they took them to the camp at Shiloh in Canaan. Then the whole assembly sent an offer of peace to the Benjamites at the Rock of Rimon, So the Benjamites returned at that time and were given the women of Jabesh Gilead who had been spared. But there were not enough for all of them. Here got 400 women now from Jabesh Gilead, 600 men of Benjamin. We still need 200 wives. And so the Israelites give permission to the men of Benjamin to attack and forcibly take 200 wives. Verse 20, 21, 20. So they instructed the Benjamites saying, Go and hide in the vineyards and watch. When the girls of Shiloh come out to join in the dancing, then rush from the vineyards and each of you seize a wife from the girls of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. When their fathers or brothers complain to us, as you would, we will say to them, do us a kindness by helping them because we did not get wives for them during the war and you were innocent since you did not give your daughters to them. So that is what the Benjamites did. While the girls were dancing, each man caught one and carried her off to be his wife. You see, it's another case of sin spreading. What was one rape of a concubine has now become 600 rapes. What was one murder has become thousands of murders. 
And why, why, why are things so bad? Why is it so awful? What is wrong with these people? Well, the narrator gives his reason in verse 25. It's the fourth time we've heard this now. I think he's trying to make his point. Verse 25. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. Okay, terrible stories, aren't they? I mean, I warned you, didn't I? Terrible, terrible stories. And notice, no cycle. No sad, no mad, no nothing. Just bad. Just five chapters of unrelenting badness. But the kind of badness that we still see in our world today, isn't it? Murder, I mean, that's still around, isn't it? Rape, that's still around. Injustice, idolatry. The kind of badness that is here is the, kind of, is the kind of badness that is still in our world and it's the kind of badness that reminds us that there is something wrong with people. So what's the problem? Well, the narrator's answer is in that refrain, isn't it? And on a first reading, you might think he's saying it's a political problem. There's no king. Okay, so you might think, well, let's get a king for Israel and everything will be fixed. Uh, replace anarchy or perhaps judges with monarchy and the problems will disappear but the thing is Israel did get a king a whole heap of kings dozens of kings you can read about them in the books of Samuel and kings and and chronicles in the Bible Israel did get kings but they were no better than the judges things in Israel did not get better until God finally threw them out of the promised land altogether having a king is not the answer the solution is not political. And, and if you read the book of Judges more carefully, you'll see that the author already knows this. Because he's already told us who should be the king. It was way back in chapter 8 of the book of Judges, back when we could find something decent in one of the judges. I've put it on your outline there. It's Gideon who says that the Israelites asked Gideon to begin a dynasty, that is, to, to be like a king and have his sons rule over them as well. But have a look at his answer. It's chapter 8, verse 22. I've put it on your outline there, right-hand side, about a quarter of the way down. The Israelites said to Gideon, Rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson, because you have saved us out of the hand of Midian. But Gideon told them, listen to this, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. The same thing happens a bit later on in the book of 1 Samuel, that historically the next book in the Bible, probably written by the same author as Judges. The Israelites asked for a king, but God sees that as a rejection of his kingship. On your outline from 1 Samuel chapter 8, the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. This displeased Samuel, so he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you, It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. God should be Israel's king. And so Israel's problem is not just a political one. It's not just a case of replace anarchy with monarchy and everything will be fixed. It's not a question of replace judges with kings and everything will be sorted out. God should be Israel's king. And so the real problem is this. This is the problem. The problem is 
The problem is with the hearts of the Israelites. The problem is Israel don't want God to be their king. The problem is that as we've seen over and over and over again in cycle after cycle, Israel are bad. Israel keep on making God mad because they don't want him to be their king. The problem's not political. The problem is much deeper than that. The problem is, to go back to what the author of Judges has said, everyone does as they think fit. As far as the Bible is concerned, that is the problem with people. We have hearts that reject God's rule. Hearts that won't submit to God as king. We need, if our world is going to be fixed, God to be the king. If God were our king, everything would be fixed. The problem is, we're happy to have God as everyone else's king and not happy to have him as our king where we have to do what he says. And so what that means is we need to be changed. We need to be changed into the kind of people who want God to be our king. And you know, all those diagnoses of the problem with people that we talked about at the start... They're they're all interesting, but they don't go deep enough. And so their solutions can't work. Education cannot fix humanity. Uh, Put a computer in every school and with every student, uh, make every student do the HSC, it is not going to fix the world. Some of the most educated people in the world are some of the worst people. Pol Pot went to university. Stalin went to university. Hitler went to university. Education can't fix humanity because our problem is not just a lack of knowledge. Economics can't do it. You can make everybody rich, but the fact is, for the most part, rich people are just as wicked and just as miserable as poor people. Our problem is not just a lack of stuff. Medicine can't fix it. You can put us all on antidepressants and antipsychotics and give us good food and etc. It's not going to change the human heart. It's not that these disciplines have nothing to say. Ignorance and poverty and mental and physical sickness, they do contribute to our problems. Education, economics, medicine, science, they can do good for humanity. But as far as the Bible is concerned, they don't get to the heart of the problem because the problem is our hearts. God should be our king, but in our hearts we don't want him as king. Friends, uh, I don't know if you've ever bought uh, um, jewellery like diamonds or a ring or something like that. Um, On the one occasion where I bought a ring for Carmelina, uh, what happened is that it it was, as I was looking at rings, they were put onto a black background. Okay, They put the rings onto a black background. I I don't think there's any trick or anything to that. It's just that against a black background suddenly the very small diamond that I could afford looked bigger and brighter. (laughs) I think that's what the book of Judges is doing for us here. It is a very, very black, very, very dark background. And when you put it against this background you can start to see why the good news about Jesus is so good. Because in Jesus God has come to be our king. And not just to be our king, 
Jesus has come to change us, to change us into people who can and who will submit to God. So first, in Jesus, God has come to be our king. And the Bible says on your outline, on your outline, in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. In Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Do you get what that's saying? Deity means God. Okay. So what this is saying is all of God was in Christ. When Jesus came to earth, God came. A bloke at Men and Machines last night was asking me, what's this bit about the Trinity? Why is it so important? I said, well, part of the reason it is so important is that when Jesus comes to live and die for us and be our king, that is God dying for us and being our king. It's not like he sent someone else to do the job. God is the one who loves us. God is the one who has come. God is the one who in Christ is king. And we're going to talk more about this at Christmas. But for now, can you see how this meets humanity's need? We need God to be king. In Jesus, God is king. But there's more. There's more to Jesus than Christmas. There's Easter as well. This same Jesus, he died on the cross to pay for our sin, to, to pay for all the ways that we, like Israel, in the time of Judges, do what we see fit. Now, when we trust in Jesus, we are allowed to be God's people forgiven for our rejection and allowed to be God's people. And when we trust in Jesus, God helps us to change. He gives us his Holy Spirit. He gives us strength to start living his way. It's good news. And it's still not all there is because the promise is that Jesus will come back and transform us completely. What we have now is real in Christ. Jesus can change our hearts here and now. Jesus Jesus can and he does change people and communities for the better here and now. But what we have here and now is just the beginning. It's just a, just a, a foretaste, the Bible says, just like a deposit, the Bible says. The full change is coming. Jesus will come back. And God will change us into people who do love to have him as king, who don't want to sin anymore. God will change this world into a new heaven and earth, a place nothing like Judges 17 to 21, a place nothing like our sick and sorry world today, a place, the Bible says, where there will be no more sin or death, a place the Bible calls the home of righteousness. Friends, these chapters of Judges are, are, are terrible, like, the, like a black background. They show us that something is drastically wrong with people. They are a picture of our problem. But God hasn't left us in the book of Judges. The book of Judges, like all the Old Testament, points, points, us, points us to Jesus, screams out for Jesus. Because in Jesus it is God who does come to be our king. In Jesus God does offer to forgive us and change us. Through Jesus God will transform this evil world into a new heaven and new earth. Friends, something is wrong with people. But Jesus is, is the solution. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank and praise you for the great news of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank and praise you that we, although we know there is so much wrong with this world, don't have to be without hope. We thank and praise you that though we can see so much injustice, so much pain, so much wrong, we don't have to be without hope. We thank and praise you that Jesus has come, that he has lived and died and risen again, and we thank you and praise you that he is coming back again so that all injustices will be righted 
all wrongs will be fixed and we will be transformed to be the people that we ought to be, the people we were made to be. Our Father, we thank you for this book of Judges that we've been able to look at over the last couple of months. We thank you for ways that we've been able to learn from so many terrible things that we've seen. And we thank you above all that we've been able to see all the more how great and wonderful Jesus Christ, our King and Saviour, is. And we pray in his name. Amen.